Well, I don't know if you had a chance to notice, but things are, are slightly different up here. Um, <laughs> this has been an interesting week. Rick ended up uh, hurting his back, and so that's why he's not playing guitar. So I'm grateful that Dan was able to jump from the bass to the, to the guitar. Ethan was able to jump from the soundboard to the bass. Brian Butman is out of town, and so Dave Henderson, one of my old friends, is, is uh, on the drums, and his son has some technical prowess, so he's in the back. And Steve Austin is not doing, not, you know, he's working on getting his heart fixed, and so Danielle is filling in on the, uh, on the computer. So everything is different today. Don't you wish you had a different preacher up here? I'm, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm sorry, I shouldn't make those kinds of jokes, but... Well, if you have your copy of God's words, let me uh, invite you to open it to the very last psalm in the Bible, Psalm 150. And uh, we're going to conclude our brief five-part summer psalter as, as we look at this, this last psalm. And I know we read it one time already, but I want to read it for us again, just in a slightly different translation, just so we can hear it and have it fresh in our minds. And if you're not familiar with scripture on how to get to where it is, open your Bible generally to the middle. You'll probably find the book of Psalms and uh, just look for the big numbers and then keep flipping to the right or to the left until you get to, uh, to number 150. If you end up in the book of Proverbs, go left. If you end up whatever's before that, go right. So let me, let me read for us one more time, Psalm 150. And this is the, in the Holman Christian Standard Bible. It says, Hallelujah. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His powerful acts. Praise Him for His abundant greatness. Praise Him with a trumpet blast. Praise Him with harp and lyre. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with flute and strings. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. Praise Him with clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Let's pray together. Father, we do come before you, delighting to praise you for who you are. Lord, we pray that as we seek to unpack this this psalm briefly, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us by the truth of your word, not just in this passage, but in, in all that your word entails as it gives us reason to praise you. But God, by your Holy Spirit, we pray that in those areas of our lives where we are out of alignment with you, Lord, that you would speak. Encourage us to keep doing what we're doing right Convict us in places where we need to adjust, where we need to put our lives in line with you. And Father, I pray that as as I speak, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Lord, speak, we pray, for we, your people, are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So as I mentioned over the last few weeks, we've been looking at these final five psalms, Psalm 146 to 150, and we've talked about the fact that they really become sort of the conclusion, the amen, 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 and amen for the entire Psalter, the entire book of Psalms, which for a lot of folks, for the, for the people of Israel, really was um, 
sort of their hymn book. That was their guide. We have hymn books in the pews in front of you, but we don't really use them because we put things on the screen. Well, for them, the book of Psalms was very much like that. It was this book of songs for, for them to, to worship and, and to worship God and to express what, what is going on in their lives to God. And so today as we walk through this, we're going to be borrowing a, an outline that uh, Warren Wearsby worked up as he studied this passage. We're going to, I'm going to put things in some different orders, but I want you guys to know that these outline points, the main ideas, kind of came from his observations of this. And so as we begin, if you want to take notes there in, in your outline, one of the things we notice right at the beginning is that the focus of worship is Yahweh. The focus of worship is Yahweh. In fact, right at the beginning, in the very first words, it says, praise the Lord, or in some translations, hallelujah. And in the very last verse, Psalm 150, verse 6, it says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And then it says it again, praise the Lord. You see, there are so many things that I think we are tempted to worship or praise. We love to worship teams. We love to worship um, actors and, and sports people and and Musicians, We love to give them accolades because we love what they do. And there are some things that we should give praise to. In fact, I, I love writing notes of thanks, writing notes of praise to people for things that they've done, areas in, that they've served in the church. I, I think it's a, a way to encourage them. But I think ultimately, as with these psalms, as, as with the other psalms that we've read over the last few weeks, Yahweh is the only one who is truly worthy of our praise and worthy of our worship. I think we can give people encouragement, but, we need, but worship and praise does something. It recognizes that, God, I need you. I know that you're the only one who is truly able to provide for the needs that I have. So our primary focus of our praise and the only object of our worship should be God. But, you know, it's interesting. This short psalm is not, not short on the exhortation to praise. You know, typically when I'm reading through Scripture, I'm looking for patterns. I'm looking for key words and I'll circle certain things. And if something is repeated, I'll know i got to pay attention to that. I mean, you know how it goes. Students, when, you're, when your mom says, hey, you do this. You know, oh yeah, I should probably do that eventually. But if she says it twice, you know you really better get on it. And three times, you know there's a punishment coming if you haven't done it by the second time, right? Well, what happens when this little six-verse psalm exhorts us to praise and gives us that command, praise God, not once, not twice, not three times, but 13 times times in six verses praise the lord praise him praise him praise him do you think we should get it do you think there's something we should do with that and so we're going to see that we're going to notice in this psalm that where praise should happen where it should come from who should be doing the praise how it should be given and ultimately why we should praise But the underlying command is that we should praise God. That we should praise God. So let's let's think about this next little section. Understanding the focus of our praise and worship, the psalmist then moves to the places of worship. The places where we should find, where we should worship God, where praise of God should be found, is in heaven and on earth. 
And we see that in, in, in the very first verse, in the second half of that verse. Psalm 150 verse 1 says, Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His his mighty heavens. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Remember when we were talking about those opposite words and we recognized the difference between heaven and earth? And here the psalmist is bringing up that tune again, saying that praise for God should should happen up there, but also should happen in His sanctuary. And immediately when we hear the word sanctuary, we think of places like this. We think of rooms like this. Sometimes in some churches they're bigger, some churches they're smaller, some churches they're more ornate, some churches they're simple. But we oftentimes think that praise should happen in a room like this. But the psalmist, as he was writing this, may have been thinking about the temple that existed in Jerusalem. It was built and destroyed and built and destroyed and built again and destroyed again. But he may have had in mind that that praise that would happen in the sanctuary of God, in the temple, in some of the most special and holy places. But several commentators suggest that this sanctuary refers more broadly to earth. Because all of the sanctuaries that that exist, at least that we know exist, exist here on earth. But I think another, another way to think about this is that the sanctuary is the place where the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth meet. The kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth meet. So we have these little outposts all over the place of, of God's people worshiping God, bringing a glimpse of the, of the kingdom of heaven here. In fact, in, in the book of Exodus, chapter 25, verse 8, God commanded them to make a sanctuary. The, they, for them, it was a portable tent that they would walk around with. But he said, and let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell in their midst. See, because it was in that sanctuary, in that place where God's presence would be with the people of God. And it is in the sanctuary where we think most about the things of God. It is in the sanctuary where we submit our ways to God in order to live them out here on the earth. And as followers of Christ, I believe the Bible tells us that we are the sanctuaries. We are the temples of God. So not only is it when we gather here, but it's even as we are dispersed about in community we the people of god are the temple of god in fact first corinthians chapter 9 says or do you not know that your body is a temple of the holy spirit within you whom you have from god you are not your own so not only do we get to worship god in this place in the sanctuary but being the people of god being the the resident temples of god out in the world we get to worship and praise god there Praise should happen on earth. And we learned a few weeks ago that praise happens in the heavens as, as God's creation. Everything we see out there does what God designed them to do and, and praises him in that way. And so since we are here on earth and we are the ones who have the volition to praise, it, it really begs the question, how should we praise God? How should we praise God? And that is answered, the psalmist answers this by saying that the means of worship is musical instruments and human voices. 
We saw this a few moments ago, but verses 3 through 6 says, Praise Him with the trumpet sound. Praise Him with the lute and the harp. Praise Him with the tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud crashing cymbals, as if there were multiple kinds of cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. You know, there are some churches... And I'm, I'm not trying to diss them by talking about it this way, but there are some churches who believe that true worship should be a cappella. True worship should be sung without instruments. It should just be voices. But here the psalmist is clearly saying we need to use more than just our voices. We should use trumpets and we should use harps and lutes and tambourines and, and, and pan pipes or, or bagpipes and things like that. One commentator noted that... These instruments kind of represent various groups of people within the congregation who would worship. He said, for instance, priests often were the ones who would use the trumpets. And that was what they would use to call the people to act. They would call the people during the exodus to march out. They would call the people to come to worship. They would use the trumpets as a blast and alarm. And it was the priests who were called to do that. Some have said that the Levites or the worship leaders would use lutes or guitars and harps and, and some of the cymbals. But then it was the lay people, it was everybody else who would be using the other instruments, things like tambourines or pan pipes, little, little pipes that have, were made of reeds and they would blow them like this. But whatever instrument we used, the psalmist clearly says that everything that has breath is to praise the Lord. So we've seen that God alone is to be praised in heaven and on earth with musical instruments and and voices. But why? And this gets us to the part of the psalm that we really haven't looked at because all of these other themes we've kind of covered in the previous chapters. And I I don't know if you've noticed, if you looked at how we've done this, we started at the beginning and looked at the outsides, the first and last part of the psalm. Then we came to the next verse, and then we came to that big chunk in the middle that talked about the instruments. Well, now we're going to get to the centerpiece, what I think is the most important part of this psalm. As the psalmist really gives us reasons for worship, why we worship, and that is God's acts and God's attributes. One translation says it this way in Psalm 150, verse 2. It says, praise him for his mighty acts. Praise Him for His surpassing greatness. You know, there are several different ways that we could really look at this psalm, that we, we could really think about these things, these acts and these attributes of God. But I think when we're studying Scripture, one of the things that's really important to do is to consider the context. Now, these psalms, psalms are kind of one-off. They're, they're clustered together in, and they're organized in a certain way, and yet they're put together in, in the book of Psalms. But oftentimes, each psalm is kind of its own little deal. But let's think about it in light of the entire book of Psalms, just briefly. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, he noted that the very first psalm, Psalm 1, and this psalm, Psalm 150, have the same number of verses, the same number of lines. And it's almost like the psalmist, whoever edited and pulled it all together, said, I want this, this needs to be the beginning. This needs to be what calls people, what helps people understand why we need to worship. And this is a fitting conclusion for all of that. And everything in the middle should inform what we learn from Psalm 1, 
and how we praise God in Psalm 50. So let's think about this. Look, look at what it says in Psalm 1, just briefly. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So that's how the book of Psalms opens. And we've read a couple of times now how the book of Psalms closes. And everything in the middle really informs our praise. It informs our worship. It informs how we pray to God. You see, in the middle, in the midst of all that, it's not all upbeat stuff. Psalm 150 is kind of upbeat. It makes you want to clap and dance and do all this stuff. But there are a whole variety of psalms. And let's just kind of consider a a couple of these things as we think about, again, we're thinking about the acts and the attributes of God. So, for instance, Psalm 9 is a psalm of victory and triumph. A couple verses in Psalm 9 says, I give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart, and I will recount of all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exalt in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. And when my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. So here the psalmist is clearly praising God for some act of victory, some act of relief, some act of triumph that he, he, he acted on behalf of of the psalmist. But yet we get other psalms that are psalms of, of confession or psalms of contrition. For instance, uh, Psalm 130 says this. It says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive Let, to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark my iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. In His Word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. So you have victory psalms. You have psalms of confession. There are also songs that represent or that reflect on God's grace throughout Israel's history. Psalm 44 is one of those, and it says, O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you have performed in their days, in the days of old. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. Not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did did their own arm save them, but your right hand. And your right arm and the light of your face for you delighted in them. So the Psalms give us insight to how God has worked throughout Israel's history and and, and helped them in, in times. But then there are those times when God, for whatever reason, chose not to act or he chose to allow certain things that cause suffering. And so there are psalms that, that are, are, are the voices of God's people crying out to him in lament. 
Psalm 22 is one of those. And this may be familiar because Jesus Christ quoted this psalm on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh God, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. So here at the end of the Psalter, here at the end of their hymn book, the psalmist calls for the people to praise God for his mighty acts and his awesome attributes or his excellent greatness. But let's think about, for just a moment, about these acts and these attributes of God. For instance, if we, if we consider the acts of God, and I'm not going to go very far into this, but, but when we think about his mighty creative works, God being the creator of all things has, has displayed his power by putting everything into motion on earth and in the heavens. He demonstrates his creativity and beauty in the way that he fashioned animals and plants. In the way that he laid out the topography of our planet. Have you ever seen pictures of some of the remotest places and just been in awe of the creativity of God? It's amazing to see the way that God has worked creatively in the universe. He also demonstrates his intricate detail in the way that he created you and me. When we consider all the things that it takes for us to be together, even that very miracle of life from a a child going from breathing liquid to now breathing air instantaneously. That process of going, of of being totally dependent on a mother in the the womb to being totally, well, still dependent, but independent in some ways. That miracle of life. The way that our brains work. We're thinking about this so much as we we pray for and and try to help Danielle's sister's family. as As her brain is trying to recover from the surgery that she's had. It's intricate. In detail, it's a miracle the way that God has worked creatively. But at various times through, throughout history, God's mighty acts have included miracles. I mean, think about this. Just think about in Israel's history. You know, there are those circumstances where God chose to work outside the laws of, of nature in order to cause something special to happen. For instance, we can see the, in, the, in the parting of the Red Sea during the Exodus, God caused the waters to separate so his people could walk on dry land. We can see it when God called Moses to fashion a bronze serpent that would lead to the healing of those who had been bitten by a venomous snake. If only they would look at it. We even get to see God's miracle working power when he healed a foreign military leader of leprosy by having him bathe in the Jordan River seven times. We can include all of the miracles that Jesus performed. In fact, his act at the cross is probably the greatest and most profound miracle that God has ever done. And we're going to reflect on that in a few minutes with the Lord's Supper. But we could also include those acts of common grace, those mighty creative works of of common grace where, where God does things to demonstrate that he is loving and good. 
those things that he allows all of humanity to encounter, his goodness, his love, a sense of right and wrong. But beyond just the way that God works, we get to praise him for who he is, for his attributes. And there's really so much we could go. I mean, we, there are volumes written talking about the character of God, but let's just reflect on a few of these. First of all, there are the omnis. You've, you've probably heard of these before. There's God's omniscience, his, his all-knowing, his ability to know everything. First John 2.20 says, but you have, a, have been anointed by the Holy One and you have all knowledge. Or God's omnipotence. So, uh, Job 42.2 says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And then there's God's omnipresence. Psalm 139 verses 7 to 10 says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. See, I find this interesting. Most of Israel's neighbors, most of the, the people around Israel believed in geographically limited gods. They believed in deities. There was the, the deity of this area and there, there, there was the God of that area and the God of that area. But what Israel believed and what we believe is that God is God of everything. That all those lesser gods are really not gods at all. They're just superstitions. But God is the God of everything. He is not limited by geography. And then scripture communicates that his presence has no limit. He is not in everything as the pantheists would believe. But God is everywhere at all times. But another attribute that we consider is God, God's sovereignty, his reign over all things. What does it mean for God to be ruler, for God to be king over everything? In the book of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar lost his mind for seven years until he acknowledged that God was the sovereign over everything. The early church members called on God's sovereignty in the face of persecution. And then Paul included God's sovereignty among several other attributes when he urged Timothy, his disciple, to walk in holiness. Look at what it says in 1 Timothy 6. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who is the te- in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at a proper time. And he who is blessed is the blessed and only sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords who alone has has immortality, who dwells in in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen nor can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. But not only is God omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, not only is God sovereign, but God is familiar. God is knowable. He has made himself known to us. We see it in creation. Romans chapter 1 says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to him. But also in his actions to his people. In Psalm 48 verse 3, the psalmist writes, Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. 
and in his actions toward his enemies. God has made himself known. In Psalm 9, it says, The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. But in Jesus, God has revealed his character most clearly. In fact, starting next week, we're going to look at, begin looking at the book of Hebrews. But look at what it says in, in the opening verses of Hebrews as it talks about these revealing words, how God has revealed himself, made himself familiar in Hebrews 1, 1 to 4, it says, Long ago and at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. We could continue to talk about all sorts of attributes of God. His love, his justice, his nearness to his people, his common grace that he shows to humanity. And like I said, in a few moments, we'll reflect on that more with the Lord's Supper. But I want us to think about one other thing. And there's a part of me, I hesitate to raise this question because typically, you know, the, the, I try to, to, to preach exposition. I try to expose what Scripture says. Now you have the, the passage we're looking at, then you have the entirety of Scripture. And I think that the psalmist would... would call us to praise God, but I want us to think about this for just a moment. Can we, or maybe the better question would be, how can we praise God when he chooses not to act or when his will causes pain? Can we praise God when he chooses not to act or when his will causes pain? I used to give some of the kids in the youth group a hard time when I would ask them a tough question and they would give me the answer, Jesus, or they would make the, the simple answer. And, and I, I want to, you know, the Sunday school answer for us in this question, can we praise God, is yes. Can we praise Him when, when there is pain? You see, there are times when the sovereign plan of God rubs against our own view of what should be good and right. And our limited vision prevents us from being able to see and understand all that God is doing. You see, this side of eternity, we may, may or may not get to understand why God allows all of the things he does. Why did God allow that job loss? Or why does God allow this sickness? Or why does God allow this mental illness or that disability? Why did he allow this financial turmoil to hit? Or why did he allow that loved one to die? We all have experienced varying degrees of pain and suffering. And the Psalms give us some insight through the laments that we can and should still praise and worship God. Even in the midst of those times. In fact, Job, if you remember his story, in the midst of his catastrophic loss, he proclaimed to his wife that the Lord gave and the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
And then, and then, and then elsewhere he says, in, in chapter 13, verse 15, he says, Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. So there's that balance. There's that ability to say, God, I don't like what's going on, but I know that you are the one who holds everything. And so I'm going to trust you. And I don't like this. Danielle and I were talking last night about some difficulties that God allowed in our lives. And it was, it was interesting. It was about five or six years ago. We had gone through, I was in, in a position at, at the other church and, and, and there was a lot of turmoil and there was a lot of things weighing on me and, and it was really forcing me to trust God in the midst of what felt like betrayal. And then at the same time, God had laid on Danielle's heart, he's, there was a, a woman who, who needed a place to stay and needed help. We had an extra room that we were just using. It was mainly a mess. So we quickly cleaned it up and made space for her. But over the course of the six or eight months that she lived with us, it became this very difficult relationship between this woman and Danielle. And, and those, those two circumstances, one of the things we realized is as much as, as we would not want to go back through those, we can now look back and see how God was using these circumstances to help us depend on Him more fully. Why didn't God allow the things at the church to go the way that I thought they should and that other people thought they should? And why does it have to feel like you're being stabbed in the back to go through that? I don't know. But looking back, I'm grateful that God allowed the pain so that I could learn and grow and understand Him more fully. Looking back at what Danielle experienced, and it really was her more, more closely with this woman who was in our house, why, why she went through that pain deepened her walk with God tremendously in ways that sometimes those joyous times don't allow us. You see, it's in the, in the face of difficulties of life. We get to call out to Him. We, we get to cry out to Him. In fact, the brothers, our brothers and sisters in Christ in the early church actually rejoiced. They were being beaten and imprisoned for their faith and they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. So as the closing chapter of, Psalms, of the Psalms, Psalm 150, calls us to praise God on earth and in the heavens with musical instruments and voices, it calls us to do so because of God's mighty works and His excellent greatness. But I think the place where we get to see His mighty works and His excellent greatness collide in that very same instance is at Calvary. It's when Jesus Christ, who, who lived that perfect life, who was born a miracle birth beyond all miracle births, 
live that perfect life as an example, but not only as an example, live so he could ultimately give his life as a ransom for you and for me. And that's what this represents, not these silver things, but what's inside here. You see, on the night before Jesus was crucified, he was having a meal with his disciples and he took a piece of bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And then later on, he took a cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. And he encouraged them to eat this bread and to drink this cup in remembrance, in honor of what he did and he would do the next day. You see, the next day, he was wrongfully accused. He was tried in, in front of a trial that would, well, certainly would be illegal by our standards, but it was even illegal by their standards. He was nailed to a criminal's cross, beaten, bruised, and died. And, and everybody around him thought they were killing him in order to get rid of a nuisance. What they didn't realize, and Jesus had to go through that pain. In fact, the night before he said, God, please, if this cup can be passed from me, don't, don't let me drink this, but let me pass it on, pass on this. He, he, I think in his, in his human heart, in his human soul, he knew what the, what the pain was he was going to be going through. And it wasn't just the physical pain of hanging on those rough hewn pieces of wood. But when you consider that in his body, the Bible tells us in his body, he bore our sins. Think about how many, how much the weight of that sin. And so when Jesus took all that sin on him, he carried it to the grave. And then three days later, that Sunday morning, rose from the grave. In that beautiful picture, in that beautiful miracle of God's redeeming grace, He made a way for you and I to have a relationship with Him. If only we would trust and believe, if we would receive His salvation. So I want to just encourage you, in a few moments, Preston's going to play a CD for us, and just to be an opportunity for us to reflect and think, and you can pray. But in just a few moments, as that's going, I'm going to invite you to come. We'll start over here with, with Zach and Zoe and kind of work row by row this side. And then in, in the back, we'll work from the back to the front on that side. Um, come up, take a cup that has a, a, a piece of bread in it. And take a cup that has a, a, a little bit of juice and just take it back to your seat. Children, let me encourage you guys. Well, actually, let me back up for a second. This is an open table. If you are a follower of Christ, this is for you. Whether you're a member of this church or not, if you are a follower of Christ, this is for you. But if you've not yet received Christ's salvation, let me just encourage you to stay where, you're, stay where you are. I'd love to talk more about it sometime, what it means to be a follower of Christ. And kids, let me encourage you to follow your parents' example. God has given them to you. As, as a means, as, as your guide through this process. So if they feel like you're ready to take this, then I'm okay with that. Well, let me pray for us. 
And then uh, Preston will start the CD and then we can partake of the Lord's Supper together. God, we do thank you. Lord, we praise you for your wonderful, miraculous, awesome acts and your attributes. And we thank you for the way that that is most clearly seen here in the cross of Jesus Christ. As you took the ugliness of our world and placed it on him. You took the ugliness of our sin and placed it on him that we might be able to walk in righteousness with you. So, Father, we praise you and thank you for that. And, God, we pray that over these next few moments, as we reflect and consider what you've done through Jesus Christ for us, we pray that you would be pleased. Lord, purify us and cleanse us from those secret sins, from those things in us that cause us to dishonor you. God, be glorified as we worship you in this way, in this time. In Jesus' name.